This sermon is by Zach Mayen, youth pastor at New Hope Community Church. To know, to live and to share Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever played or seen or even heard of Mortal Kombat? Anyone? A couple of you. People that lived through the 90s and were aware. But I think it's pretty creative. It's Mortal Kombat, The Death of Sin. Okay? Came up with that title before I actually watched the movie. So I apologize. Um, but then I did. I just thought to myself, well, you know, I probably should watch this movie since I am titling my sermon after that. I just thought it was catchy and, like, it got my point across. But um, anyway, so I did watch the movie, uh, the 1995 film Mortal Kombat. And uh, surprisingly, actually, there were God's Cool That Way. Like, I made this mistake by not watching it, but then he kind of pulled it together. There's some things there, some connections. I was actually not even going to really reference it. I just thought it was funny. But now, now we will. So, um, anyway... I had to confess that to you all before we dug in this morning. So let's pray, and then we can uh, get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all of us that you brought out here on this kind of dreary morning. And um, thank you for this place that we have to worship you, Lord, um, in the midst of uh, communities that otherwise you know, might not have a place to openly worship you. I pray, Lord, that you would protect this body of believers. I pray, Lord, that you would protect this community. I pray, Lord, that you would do a great work here through this group of people. And I pray that this morning uh, the words that you've put on my heart would be of you and that they would bless our congregation, that we would be able to grow closer to you through them. And anything that's not of you, Lord, I pray that you would just let us forget it. Um, let it just pass right over us. Um, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So this morning, we will be discussing morality, ethics, and sin. And I know that like, oftentimes when we talk about these things, it can come across kind of like fire and brimstone-y. Uh, I, I am really hoping that there's balance this morning. I don't want you to think that I'm like bringing the fire and brimstone. Um, but... Um, I do hope that we, we kind of address it with a level of seriousness. So if we can balance that this morning, as so we kind of look at mortal combat and talk about sin and morality, um, that we can hold them in balance. Just to briefly introduce you, because a, a decent number of you have not heard of mortal combat, just to briefly introduce you to the series. So Midway Games came out with a video game called Mortal Kombat in 1992. I know you were all really interested in this. So. Um, the game was a fighting game with monster characters and humans. And aside from that, there really wasn't any like plot. Uh, there was no real storyline. It was just pick a character and beat up the other character. Uh, and it, it was a hit, I think, for a little while. The people liked it. And in 1995, they decided, well, let's put some backstory to the game. So they came out with Mortal Kombat, the movie, the film, in 1995. And in that film, we learned that Mortal Kombat is a tournament that happens in which Earth's um, greatest warriors are selected to combat um, Outworld's, Outworld's greatest warriors. You learn that there's this agreement between the like 
supernatural godlike force of Earth, known as Raiden, um, and the supernatural godlike force of Outworld, known as the Emperor. So the agreement is that if Outworld's warriors win Mortal Kombat ten times in a row, then they are allowed to lay siege to Earth, which I think is a very fair agreement. I mean, ten times. Like, if you lose ten times, then we, you know, we deserve it. But um, so in the film, you find out very quickly that Outworld's warriors have won nine times, and this Mortal Kombat is the last one before Outworld's warriors can lay siege to Earth. So, in essence, the warriors selected in this film have the entire fate of the Earth in their hands. So the film's this typical, like, 90s film with some humorous, very humorous attempts at some special effects. Um, If you're interested in a good laugh, watch it. It's very funny. There's some underlying, like, romantic tension and whatnot. But despite all of that... Um, it did depict, for me, something that I think is valuable for us, that there, there is a spiritual war going on, not just over the earth, but over the kingdom of God. And every day we choose a side to fight for, whether it's choosing to sin or choosing to glorify God. So think about that as we um, just flip to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. And I want to try to show you what I mean. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13 starts, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Um, So what's going on here? Paul planted the church in Corinth, and now he has some ongoing correspondence with this church in Corinth as they're continuing to strive for growth, right? And that's, that's, if you're not familiar, that's basically how um, pastors worked back then. 
they would go, they'd plant a church, and they would still be overseeing that church. They'd leave people in charge. They'd go and they'd plant another church. And in a sense, they kind of were overseeing multiple churches, and then they continued to help them grow through correspondence. And when really, when it was really bad, they would go back and they would help. So here you see Paul is corresponding with the church in Corinth. And apparently the church had written to Paul and kind of, address some issues that they had questions or concerns over. So this is Paul's response related to this specific case of egregious sexual sin. So the case is that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul tells him that the appropriate response to this sin would be to go into mourning. And the word for mourning that's used there is the word that would have been used in the context of someone had died, okay? So Paul is basically telling the church to mourn this person as if they have died. And the reason he's doing that is because the person has died, spiritually speaking. Um, So Paul, he calls them to mourn the person. He's sinning in such an egregious way that he needs to be removed from the church, Later in verse 5, he actually says to hand the man over to Satan so that his spirit might be saved. This is kind of another way of Paul saying to cast the man out of the church. And the hope there, as Paul kind of points out, for the, the salvation of his soul, that his spirit would be saved. So the hope is that by casting him out of the church, right, or, or turning him over to Satan, um, that this type of discipline would eventually cause the man to repent and turn back to the Lord. In the next bit of the passage, Paul uses a metaphor to describe what sin can do in the church if left undisciplined. So it's like adding yeast to dough. If you add a little yeast, the whole batch of dough will rise. So Paul says you must get rid of the yeast completely or in this context, the unrepentant sinner, so that the whole batch of dough, or in this context, the whole church, isn't affected by the sin. So the next few verses are kind of particularly interesting to me, though. In verses 9 and 10, Paul clarifies that basically everything he just said about judging folks was specifically meant for the context of the church, specifically meant for the context of between believers, okay? Um, Brothers or sisters, he refers to them. And then in verse 12, he actually says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Okay, so that's a very important distinction uh, that Paul makes, and I think that we need to consider as well. So in an effort to better understand the passage, I think it would be helpful for us to have kind of a working definition of sin, right? So I wanted us to consider two definitions of sin this morning. And you're all probably like, we know what sin is, Zach. Um, I promise you, it's pretty exciting stuff when you you really dig into it. So so first, there's Wayne Grudem's definition of sin. Anyone heard of Wayne Grudem? Anyone? A couple people, yeah. So Wayne Grudem wrote a systematic theology that because I went to Cairn University, I am in love with because they tell every student you have to buy it and you have to basically live by it. So, um, no, I'm just kidding. But it is, uh, you know, it's, it's a Cairn University kind of foundational text. So I like Wayne Grudem, 
And his definition of sin is um, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So I'm, I'm going to say that again. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So, like I said, I preface this with, I really like Wayne Grudem. But what do you guys think about that definition of sin? Um, whenever, basically, whenever we fail to meet the moral law or standard that God has set for us, we're sinning. That's what Wayne Grudem is saying. And I ask myself, is that really it? Is that all that it is? Personally, I, in this case, I don't think that Grudem is necessarily wrong in his definition of sin, but I think that there's more to it. It's not a very full definition of sin. It's true that when we don't obey God or his law, we're sinning, right? We can all agree on that for the most part, I think, in this room. But I think that isn't the, the definition of sin. It's an example of sin, but I think that it's not what sin actually is. So John Piper, and I, I also love John Piper, so um, you'll hear me mention him a number of times, I think. John Piper said in a sermon once that sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God above all things. And the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that does not treasure God over all other person and all other things. So I think, personally, I think that this is a much more full definition of sin. And I think if we think about sin in that way, it's helpful for us in understanding the passage in 1 Corinthians and really just any passage on sin and how we deal with sin as believers. So this particular definition, it kind of hits the heart of the issue. Basically, we don't love God when we're sinning. We don't love God. Um, when we don't love God, we're sinning. Sin was never about kind of a specific action. And you can see this in Matthew. So in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, when this is just one of the examples where Jesus basically looks at the law and says, you've got it wrong. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see, Jesus is pointing to the heart of the issue. He says, it's about your heart. Where's your heart at? So I want to go back to the first sin because some of you, I think, I look around the room, some of you are still kind of looking at me skeptically. So we'll go back to the first sin. Genesis two sixteen to 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Jumping to three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So you probably are thinking to yourselves, well, Zach, seems pretty cut and dry, right? There's a rule. God gave them a rule. They broke the rule. Don't eat from the tree, right? Adam and Eve ate from the tree. Everything goes down the toilet from there, and it seems to me like sin is about not breaking rules, right? And that's an easy assumption to make. I think that's what most people uh, think, and you know, I think there's been times in my life where I've thought of sin that way too. But unfortunately, I really would challenge you, and I would say that I think that's a wrong assumption to make. When you look at this situation, sin's not this moral obligation or ethical debacle. Sin is when we desire something else more than we desire God. So Eve's sin wasn't that she took the fruit. It started before that. She was sinning before she took the fruit, right? If you think about it, Eve's sin was that she valued herself, her wisdom, the wisdom of the serpent. She valued those things above God. And she valued them above her relationship with God. That's what offends our father. It's not that we took the fruit. It's that we chose to break our relationship with him for something else. So God isn't this like Zeus-like deity sitting in a giant throne with this kind of like moral checklist stone tablet, right? That's not the God that we worship. It's not the God that we know. God is a perfect father who created people in his image to have a relationship with us. And he created us desiring that we, his creation, would choose to have a relationship with him. So if you take a step back for a moment and try to consider a different scenario, right? Put ourselves in in kind of a different perspective. Say you, in your career, whatever your profession may may be, um, you've had years and years and years of experience in your career. You could do your job in your sleep. One day, some young whippersnapper shows up and your boss says, you know, you, Andrew, you know what you're doing. Give him an orientation Show him around, teach him everything that you know, and send him off to do his job. So you do that. And imagine how would you feel if after you spend all this time investing in this young man, you send him off to do his job, and or you can say it's a girl too if that makes you feel better, um, guy or girl, the young man or woman, they kind of go off and they say, you know, Forget Andrew. He's been doing this too long. I can figure out a better way to handle this situation. And ultimately, he, starts, he or she starts cutting corners in their work. And some of us may have even seen this happen in our own lives. We've seen people come in and think, you know, I can do this better. And then they end up getting hurt or they end up messing something up in a major way. My question to you is, what does that do to your relationship with that individual? What relationship, right? Like, you don't want to have a relationship with them. They totally disrespected you. They ignored everything you said. You invested in them, and then they hurt themselves on the job because they ignored what you said, right? Clearly, this young whippersnapper doesn't care about what 
I have to say or they don't care about having a relationship with me just kind of cares about himself or herself and getting out of the job faster. This, this example, this is what we do to God on a daily basis. If you really think about it, God gave Adam and Eve kind of an earth orientation, if you will. Right? He walked them through the garden and he told them, listen, I know it's going to be tempting for you, but don't eat from this one tree. Just don't eat from this one tree. It's not good for you right now. Um, it'll be better for you, right, to just walk with me, continue to have a relationship with me, grow with me. You'll, you'll gain knowledge by walking with me. You don't need this shortcut. You don't need this tree. And then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve, they go off and they say, you know, this seems like a better option. It's the same exact scenario. And it's exactly what we did. We, we said to God, you know, I don't care about that relationship. I don't care about walking with you. I don't care about learning from you. I want to get what I want faster because I want what I want and I want it now. God's law isn't this, like, moral code or ethical checklist. It's a prescription for a holy and healthy life that allows us to have a glorious relationship with our Creator who loves us more than we could possibly imagine. In a sense, we take kind of an easier road when we try to turn our relationship with God into a moral checklist, right? It's kind of black and white. Um, I kind of, this is where Mortal Kombat comes in, because when you think about, like, Mortal Kombat, it's just like every time we beat a bad guy, right, every time we win a combat, we're one step closer to saving the earth. And for us, it's like every time I defeat a sin in my life, I overcome this or I overcome that, check off that, I'm this much more of a spiritual person, and God's kingdom is better off for it. If we use the working definition that sin is anything that comes from a heart that doesn't treasure God above all else, and we, um, we look at that, we'll see that our faith, our faith ends up being proven by our works, but our works are reflective of our ever-growing love for our Heavenly Father, right? So it's not... It's not that we don't do sin, we don't do bad things because God said so. We don't do bad things because we love God. There's no way for us to just kind of white-knuckle our way to heaven. So let's take another look at 1 Corinthians 5 um, with this definition of sin in mind. It makes sense that we would kind of treat sin differently within the church than we do outside of the church, right? You see, within the church... People have already kind of committed, they've committed their lives, uh, they've committed to treasure God above all else. That's the commitment that you make when you become a believer. And we enter into a family of other people who have made that same commitment, and we as a family, we want to care for one another and help strive each other along in that goal to love God more every single day. So when we, within that family, we see a brother or sister who is doing something that reveals that they don't treasure God above all else, it's not just a responsibility, but it should be this kind of 
this emotional need to go to that person and say, shake them and just be like, why? Why are you doing this, right? And that's what, that's what Paul is calling the church of Corinth to feel when he says that mourning, right? To mourn them as if they have died. Because this is a family, and we all should love and care for each other in that way. So when we see someone who's struggling, when we see someone who is putting something that isn't good for them above God and their relationship with God, we need to go to that person. And then ultimately, um, we have to kind of look at the bigger picture. If that person is unrepentant, then we have to say, listen, for the sake of the rest of the family, we need you to take a step out of, of this family for a little while and kind of think about what's going on in your life. And it doesn't mean that we aren't here for you. It doesn't mean that we don't love you, but it means that you kind of have to wrestle with that. And if you decide that you want to start treasuring God above all else again, come on back. But we can't have what you're doing affect our striving for that loving relationship with God. But outside the church is a totally different story, right? Outside the church, people have kind of yet to recognize their need for that relationship with God. They're interested in being kind of, or they're not interested in being told how to love God or how to have a relationship, a stronger relationship with him, because they don't feel the need for a relationship with him in the first place. So why would we be concerned about whether or not they're sinning if they don't have a relationship with God in the first place? So as believers now we kind of enter into this working partnership with god Um, you see god's calling these folks that are outside of the church to himself right and we we're here to point them to christ not to point out their weaknesses or their sins but to point them to christ like paul says who am i to be concerned about them let god judge them. That's his job. Our job is just to have a loving relationship with our creator and exemplify that to these folks and show them the power of that and show them that what they're searching for in life, all the things that they are choosing to put above God in their life, all the seeking and searching that they're doing, that they'll never find satisfaction until they have that relationship with him. And they can see that in our, not our striving to check off that moral checklist, but our striving to have a strong, loving relationship with God our Father. So then, of course, there's still this law aspect, right? And God created the law, and so some of you are probably like, well, Zach, what do you do about that whole law thing? Um, Thankfully, we have a Savior who paid a price for our transgression. So we don't have to be concerned about the law in that moral checklist. I mean, that is how Israel did kind of view it. It was like, if I do this, then everything is okay. And Christ came, and basically it revealed to us that we were never going to meet that standard on our own. And by him coming and paying the price for our transgressions, Now we can just focus on that relationship, which is exactly what God intended in the first place. 
So Christ is not an obligation, but a satisfaction. And I just want to, I'm trying to, sorry, I'm trying to skip ahead a little bit. Another time that John Piper was speaking, uh, he gave a really relevant example for us. He used this, this like object lesson. How many of you have heard the object lesson that faith is like a chair? Anyone? Yeah, so faith is like a chair. You don't think about sitting in a chair, you just sit in it, right? And our faith should be like that. But what Piper said, which was, I think, really smart and a little witty, um, he said, you can sit in a chair, you can trust the chair to hold you up, but you can also at the same time think the chair is hideous and never want to put it in your living room, right? You could be completely embarrassed by the chair. And so often, Piper says, and I agree with him, so often that's how we treat Christ. It's like, I trust him to save me from my sins, but, but do I want to show him to the world? Or am I embarrassed of him and I want to kind of put him in the basement like that ugly chair? True faith is loving Christ and wanting to love him more and more every single day. And that is actually what communion is about. Christ gave us this example of his sacrifice. And it's not just a necessity, like going through a toll booth to kind of you pay your toll and you get through. It's not like that. It's, it's rather, it's an example of how we, we desire food and drink, Right? You long for the nourishment of good food and good drink. I don't know about you guys, but like I, I like to eat, if you can't tell. I like good food. And communion is, is about that. It's about do we long for the nourishment of our Savior in the way that we long for the nourishment of good food and good drink. Matthew 26, 20, um, 26, 26 to 29 says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What things are stopping you from being satisfied in Christ today? I challenge you this morning as we get ready to get ready to um, accept communion. I challenge you this morning to think about what are those things that you are choosing above all else. Um, set them aside and just fall in love with your Savior again today. Find nourishment in your Savior. And if you've never really done that before, maybe today is the day. Hopefully, thinking about God not just as this wrathful, vengeance, ven- vengeful God um, concerned about your moral or ethical code, but as a God that just completely loves and desires a relationship with you, thinking about him that way, um, maybe today's the day. Maybe today, as we prepare for communion, you would like to consider accepting Christ's sacrifice that pays for your transgressions and 
and entering into that joy-filled relationship with your Savior. I'd like to, I think, Gail, um, if you want to start kind of coming up. As we prepare to take communion today, consider all of that and consider the sacrifice that Christ made for us and consider the forgiveness that was offered us and, and consider anything that you might be doing that would hinder that relationship with God. And I challenge you to repent of that and, and turn from it and just bask in the forgiveness of Christ's sacrifice for you. So here at New Hope, we take the bread and wine individually. Um, wine, juice. Um, sorry, there's no wine over here. Um, we'll, Gail will be, um, I guess, singing for us and playing some music. And um, you can just come up when I have kind of cleared the way for you. You can come up take and come back to your seat. You can take individually. You can take it um, with someone else. There's really not a wrong way to take it. But there are, however, two reasons why you should choose not to take communion today. And um, the first is if you, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, communion isn't something to be taken lightly. Um, it, it really is a, a time to recommit ourselves to Christ. And if you haven't made that commitment in the first place, then it really um, should be kind of held with reverence. And so I would just challenge you to kind of hold off on that and consider is, is today the day that you would like to enter into that relationship with him. And the other reason to refrain it, if, if there's a sin in your life that you're just not willing to repent from, and like I said, it's not necessarily an action. Um, we all sin. Um, but if you're in your heart, if you just will not let God reign, then I would challenge you to just wrestle with him now silently in, in your seat and, and let communion pass from you today. Um, so before we do this, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your endless pursuit of us. Your love is just truly unconditional. And I can't imagine just the, the anguish of having sent your son to die on the cross for us, but you did. You did that. And I thank you, Lord, for the joy that comes from, from loving you more than anything else in our life. And I thank you, Lord, for giving us communion as a way to honor your son and remember your promises and, and remember the commitment that we made to you and, and, and take that as a, a way to remind ourselves of just the, the nourishment that comes from our relationship with you. And I pray now that this time would be glorifying to you, that you would use it to draw us back to you. In your son's name, amen.